All right, we're back, folks. Now we're on to some real guests, real part of our show. The first hour in July is just always uh, about the musicians who have performed on our show over the year, and we spin some of their tunes, so I turn into a into a DJ. And the last hour of the show is just silliness with games and frivolity and prizes and tongue twisters and useless television trivia. Right now, Phil Cousineau is an award-winning writer and filmmaker, teacher and editor, lecturer and travel leader, storyteller and TV host, uh, and then he has a real job, I think, too. <laughs> his fascination with the art, literature, and history of culture has taken him from Michigan to Marrakesh, Iceland to the Amazon, in a worldwide search for what the ancients called the soul of the world. With more than 30 books and 15 script-writing credits to his name, the omnipresent influence of myth in modern life is a thread that runs through all of his work. I'll say that again. The omnipresent influence of myth in modern life. And uh, he joins us from, I think, San Francisco right now. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together, which is a weird thing to say in radio, Phil Cousineau. Phil, what's going on, man? How are you? Uh, great to hear from you, Drew. Is it? I'm, I'm happily ensconced out here in North Beach at the top of Telegraph Hill in San Francisco, where I've been living the last 30-odd years since I moved out from Detroit. So I was just across the river from all of you in Canada. Back in the day when you were in Detroit, Rock City? Nice. In Motown. Yeah, that's right. Um, okay, how far away from Robin Williams did you live? Of course, we've lost it. Was it last year, I think? Was it been three years, Tim? Has it really? Wow. Anyway, was Robin Williams anywhere near you, Phil? Well, he was. Curiously, I used to live out near Golden Gate Park, very near the Holy City Zoo, which was a legendary comedy club back in the 70s and 80s. And I used to bump into him frequently. The, the, the most amusing was five minutes after I finished my book on Joseph Campbell in around 1990, The Hero's Journey. I wrote the book and the film about Campbell's life. I needed a break right after a few years of working on the book, so I pushed send on the computer, sent it out to Harper, San Francisco, walked down Clement Street near Golden Gate Park in San Francisco, walked into the Holy City Zoo, just wanting a beer and a few jokes, and Robin Williams was actually on stage at that very moment, and his opening line was, have you, have you all heard of the, the Joseph Campbell sub, subway, no. submarine sandwich, uh, the hero with a thousand cheeses? <laughs> <laughs> it was one of those moments where you can't get away from the very thing you've been obsessed obsessed about for many years. So. That's incredible. All right, for our listeners, though, for our listeners who may not know what the heck you're talking about, who's this Joseph Campbell dude? Uh, one of the world's great scholars of mythology. He taught at Sarah Lawrence for 38-plus years, and his books on comparative religion, mythology, and literature, and so on, are really some of the most significant in the 20th century. Arguably, he's the most important influence on modern films. In the late 70s and early 80s, people like George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, even Akira Kurosawa, Francis Ford Coppola were all looking back over their shoulder, as it were, to legends, fairy tales, myths, trying to find a way to revive, resuscitate modern storytelling in literature as well as in the movies. And many of them went back to, this is where the joke comes in, Campbell's most famous book, published in 1949, which was The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Mm -hmm. Hence the joke, The Hero with a Thousand Cheeses. And I met Campbell in in the early 80s, 
through a fellow who had worked with Alan Watts, who was a kind of a rapscallion philosopher out here. He was partially responsible for bringing Buddhism to America for the first time. And this was in the years after I had graduated from the University of Detroit in journalism and had traveled the world for many years, came back, and I was really trying to put together, what, how does the world make sense? Where do I fit into the world? And a teacher I was working with said, so what are you reading? You've been traveling a lot. What are you reading? And I told him mythology, literature, on and on. He said, oh, you could save yourself a lot of trouble if you just read some Joseph Campbell, because he's been out there before you. And here's a kind of a a lesson for, for listeners. People are always asking, how do you do what you do? Well, part of it comes from his famous near bumper sticker advice now. Um, you know you're in a midlife crisis if you climb to the top of the ladder and you found it leaning against the wrong wall. <laughs> that was part of me. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the other was follow your bliss. That's become a bit of a cliche, but his earlier advice I find so intriguing. I, I use it now every day. Follow your fascination. What is the deepest, deepest passion? What holds okay, you? Okay, hold, hold on, hold on. I got to interrupt sure. you on that one for a couple sure. of reasons. One, sure. I've got an, I've got a, a co-host buddy who's sitting here in the studio, chomping at the bit, wanting to talk to you because apparently <laughs> he likes you. Yeah. F- uh, Phil, this is Tim the Tool. Tim, this is <laughs> this is Phil. Hey, Phil, how you doing, hey. man? Uh, the other reason I want to stop you is because the whole follow your bliss and follow your fa- what you're fascinating, you know, that kind of thing. I, I have an automatic pushback with that whole Oprah mentality of, you know, there's a girl up here named Lily Frost who's got a song that, that says, uh, do what you love and the money will follow. That is a load of crap, I think. <laughs> you? That has nothing to do with what I just said. No, but what what I what I'm trying to get at, and I think yeah. so, that's good. I'm glad you pushed that back. Is yeah, as an avocation, as a hobby, as a passion, as part of your life, as part of your being. But it seems like everybody, including millennials, especially millennials, they want to uh, do what they love and get paid and get paid really no, well for I, it. I, I I did not say that. Good. In any manner, good. shape, or form. Good. Grandma Dora from Ottawa, Canada, used. <laughs> what I'm talking about has a connection with your soul, Good. not the marketplace, not money or fame. It, it has to do with your soul. And that's what the original sense of follow your fascination is. Uh, Campbell used to tell us when we were making the film about him, if your father tells you to go um, study law because that's where the money is and that's where you can make your name, he says, run for the hills. Because there's another calling. It has to do with spirit and soul. It has to do with your destiny. And that's why people in my world of making films that we think are important, making, uh, writing books, traveling to places where we might make a difference, that's where the tires hit, hit, the, hit the road. Okay. Fascination All right. in this sense has to do with why are you really here? Why, what, what is your fate or destiny? And that's what Campbell meant. It has nothing to do with outward success. Beautiful. It has to do with inward success. And this is why we have Phil Cousineau on the show. Tim, you're chomping over there. What, what do you want to say? Well, I was going to say, like, Joseph Campbell wrote Heart of Darkness, correct? No, no, oh, no. Who wrote Heart of Darkness? Joseph Conrad. Oh, jeez. And this is why we call him Tim the Tool. All right. See, because I thought that was Coppola's connection to Con- uh, Campbell with um, Apocalypse Now, which was based on the wrong novel. Well, this they are connected in a mysterious way that has to do with a lot with my work as well as Campbell's, and and that's this. Coppola 
wanted to make a film about the madness of Vietnam, but he it was too close to the end of the war to do something literally. So what he did is what people have been doing since Cervantes, all the way back to Homer, uh, Dante. You find an ancient story that still speaks to the modern world. So Coppola first goes to the heart of darkness. Joseph Conrad's book about exploration in uh, colonial Africa which was in turn had been inspired by Homer's Odyssey. And this became the advice that Campbell gave to so many modern filmmakers, including Stanley Kubrick, by the way, for 2001 Space Odyssey. Kubrick had found uh, a short story published in 1951 by Arthur C. Clarke called The Sentinel. He wanted to make a movie about this, but not every time you find a magazine article or something in the paper, that doesn't always translate into a movie. If you go to the ancient stories and find out what is perennial, what's universal in the human heart, the search for where we are in the world, the search for truth, where does evil come from in the world, you end up back in the myths, legends and fairy tales. So Kubrick found Campbell's book, as so many of us have who are writing today, and had a kind of, aha, this is how I can make a modern movie. And in 1968, Campbell went into a movie theater in Greenwich Village where he was living with his wife, had no idea what movie was playing. The curtain comes down. Uh, what was that? Um, uh, the Blue Danube comes on. The, uh, right. Remember yep. the, the Strauss yep. opening to the movie? And then you see the Australopithecines throwing the bone into the sky, which turns into the spaceship. Campbell elbows his wife and says, they've been reading my books. Wow. Oh. Here is this. This is what I want to tell listeners. Then, if you want to express yourself, what comes off the top of your head tends to be confessional, and it will only talk to your boyfriend, your mother, and maybe your pet dog. If you want to reach the universal, if you want to reach people around the world, you go deep. You go into your dreams. You go into ancient stories, which will create a kind of aha in which you will be able to write something, paint something, sing something that will speak for all time. Mm. Wow. Part of my work. Uh, Phil Cousineau on the line with us. Phil, you were, I want to know what you actually believe spiritually. I know you were raised French Catholic, and I'm sorry for both sides. Uh, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, What do you believe? I believe in the, the sacredness of life. I I'm grateful, actually, that I was raised with a French Catholic background because what it gave me was a sense of ritual and ceremony, a Mm. sense that life is sacred. Uh, Campbell, coincidentally, used to quote James Joyce, you can't teach an old dogma new tricks. (laughs) I, I, I hear dogma is in part of your radio show, right? And so... If you don't like the the faith, the religion that you were raised in, it doesn't mean that you have to kick sanctity, sacredness of life out the window. Mm. I have been on a search for the last 40 plus years around the world looking to find what is sacred. And what is even, the word means something that is worthy, worthy of our reverence. You know, a, a question that I've asked so many people over the years ties in with seekers and mm-hmm. and in my brain a seeker a seeker's job is to seek in order to find and land 
But some people have said to me, no, once a seeker, always a seeker. You will never stop seeking. But I used to think that seeking was uh, was done for a purpose of finding a place to land. What are your thoughts? Oh, that, well, that's, that's beautiful. I lead art and literary tours every year, actually through a company out of Vancouver, your own Canada, Sacred Earth Journeys. And I take people to Ireland, to Greece, uh, recently to Cuba, to Paris next year, Ireland this fall. And what I'm trying to do with a group of people is what I've done with myself for 40-plus years traveling around the world. And that is find what is timeless, what's worthy of our reverence, what's worthy of our sacredness, which in turn gives us meaning and purpose. So uh, travel is now the number one business in the world. It's overtaken the armaments industry, which is a huge historical curiosity. And it's fueled, ironically, not just by uh, Club Med, people with uh, endless amounts of money wanting to go and titillate themselves. No, it's actually fueled by the biggest resurgence in pilgrimage in human history. People are traveling for meaning and purpose. That is what's underlying your question about seeking. Seeking is, is Socratic. It means I am always curious. I can never ask enough questions. On the other side of that is Picasso. I don't seek, I find. And I think there's a beautiful kind of yin-yang balance in that. Seeking with intensity, passion, curiosity, but then occasionally, I love your, your verb there, occasionally landing. And landing and saying, wait a minute, this talks to me. This feels like truth. Find that, own it, and then start asking questions again so that life becomes a constant world, as it were, seeking and finding, seeking and finding. For someone like me, after I find, now I have to write about it. Right, exactly. I have to make a film. I have to uh, help someone else, which is a big part of my life, helping others write and express themselves, which then gives me more energy to keep seeking. Uh, Phil, I walked the Camino last year. This is my, mm. my first time, and during a three-month vow of silence, and I finished mm. uh, at a monastery on an island off the coast of Western Sahara and just kind of um, decompressed uh, before coming back to North America. And when it comes to pilgrimage, what do you, what do you say to those out there that are interested in doing some sort of pilgrimage but they still have this consumeristic, Western, busy, plugged-in mind. You know, what would be sort of your top three pieces of advice for those, I don't know, who are doing pilgrimage because it's just a cheaper way to travel and, and turn you know, look at cool stuff or whatever. They're, they're missing something. What are they missing and how are they missing it and why are they missing it? What do you think? Oh, beautiful. I wrote my book, The Art of Pilgrimage, uh, 1997. It's now in 10 languages. It's published around the world. I get letters virtually every day from somewhere in the world because people are carrying it with them to walk the Camino, to walk the ancient Inca Trail to Machu Picchu, or people going to the Cooperstown Baseball Hall of Fame because they think it's, there's something sacred there. Uh, my notion of pilgrimage is that it's a transformative journey to a sacred place. You just walked the Camino. You probably know as well as anybody that not everybody simply on a pilgrimage is actually getting some meaning and purpose. Uh, there are monks walking around Mount Kailash in Tibet who are doing it out of rote. They're doing it in a robotic way. Mm -hmm. But 
traveling, walking in silence, as you do, and I always have a day of silence when I lead my groups around the world, because it focuses us. We are hoping to go on a spiritually transformative journey. And why? Because all pilgrimage, I've traced it back about 60,000 years to the Australian walkabout. Every known culture in human history has had a form of a walkabout, a vision quest, a pilgrimage. Why? Because, as philosophers throughout human history have said, people fall asleep. They fall asleep throughout their lives, and it's the function of philosophy, religion, art, and I think travel to wake us up. I hope you heard my fingers snap there (laughs) across the radio. This kind of of pilgrimage, this kind of travel, wakes us up to what? To ourselves, to where we belong in the world, to what we are supposed to be doing. And often we cannot find those answers at home. Our therapist can't help us anymore. Our lover can't help us. The village priest can't help us. And then, what is it Nietzsche said? I don't trust any ideas that come to me while sitting down. (laughs) There's a wonderful raft of quotes about how therapeutic, in the deepest sense of therapy, walking itself is we walk somewhere to slow down get closer to our thoughts get away from email and all of the inanities of the world to get closer to what is what what's the wonderful of a line in Upanishads the truth of your life is as close to you as the vein throbbing in your neck Wow. Okay, you are just a walking quote machine, and you're killing me here with this stuff because I'm I'm listening to them going, oh, that's good. Oh, you're like a shotgun. Okay, but here here's the thing. I'm, I have family members uh, that are from different generations, mm. relatives, and and uh, even just normal people that I know, and uh, and they heard about my three month vow of silence, and they heard about my two month walking. And they just sort of roll their eyes and don't get it. And and I, I know part of the back commentary is this. Dude, back in our day, we didn't have time to just be able to go for a walk and a really long walk and think about stuff. We had to, we had to survive. We had to put food on the table. And even today, there are many people, uh, Phil, who just are barely surviving, let alone being able to unplug and uproot and go walk somewhere, you know, for, for a big, long time. Or even let alone have a silent retreat weekend. People just can't do that. There's something, is it not a, a byproduct, this whole um, pilgrimage thing that dust Westerners are doing? Is it not simply a byproduct of, I don't know, uh, maybe even a, a, a narcissistic spirituality where we're like, what's in it for me? I got to find out about me. I got to discover me. I got to go to personality tests and pilgrimages and blah, 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 blah. It all comes down to the fact that we watch too much Oprah. <laughs> Thoughts? I think it's the opposite. Yeah. The narcissism has to do with, I don't need to walk anywhere. I can get all I need from my television, from my iPhone, from the local coffee shop. No. Human history, (laughs) pilgrimage did not begin in the culture of narcissism, as Christopher Lash called it. People in every known tradition throughout human history, from American Indians to the Polynesians getting into their long canoes to paddle 2,000 miles across the Pacific, every known culture has had this built in simply because there will come at least one time, often more, when the answers at home do not work and we feel a kind of soul rust coming in. 
Dude, you are week. killing me with these words. Man, I'm right. Okay, Tim, when was the last time you saw me writing down this much stuff during an interview? Just cause get writing note after note and line after line. It's amazing. I think you're going to have another book ready by the time we're finished with this interview. Oh, man. Soul Rut. That would be like a... That's a great name for a band, too, Phil. Yeah. <laughs> Take it. Go for it. <laughs> Sounds like something um, Oh, like Neil Young would write. Yeah. Mm, mm. I like it. I like it. Um, okay, just hold, hold on a second. Phil, um, who said this? There are a couple of hundred souls in this room, but one spirit. Houston Smith. Tell the world about Houston Smith and how he really answered the most... You know, it's a question I ask regularly. What's the difference between soul and spirit? And that was a concisely painful answer. Houston Smith, who just passed away a few months ago, incidentally, at the ripe old age of 97. And and that's a personal loss for you. I want to say I'm sorry for for your loss. Thank you. Uh, Yes, I, I, I knew him since the late 1980s. Worked with him many on many books, many films. He married my wife and I as my my son's godfather. Um, Houston was significant for a couple of reasons. One, he went on the air in what was the prototype for PBS here in the states in the mid 1950s, and was the first to create a series of programs in which he was looking for the commonality between the world's great religions, not vaunting one over the other, but asking what is the human quest? And he believed the human quest was for the transcendent. I once asked him, what have you tried to accomplish, Houston, in 55 years of writing and teaching religion? And he said, I want to get across to my readers and my students that there is another world right beside this one that we can reach through prayer, through good acts, through pilgrimage. We often talk, because I, I've written five books on soul, one way or the other. Uh, my biggest book was uh, Soul from uh, Socrates to Ray Charles. <laughs> and he w- was writing about spirits. So one day we playfully said, what's the difference between the two? And he said, there are many souls in this room. We were talking to uh, an auditorium of about 500 people, but one spirit. And the spirit is, as you might say, Drew, is one of humility and curiosity. Well, that was good, souls and spirits. But I have another uh, riff on that, because I've thought about this so much, and I grew up in Soul City, right? Motown, Detroit, where the priests were trying to save my soul five mornings a week going to Mass, but then I would go out playing basketball on the streets of Detroit, listening to soul music. We never played ball without music in the background. So here's an image for you, for your listeners. Um, remember the old barber poles outside of barber shops yeah. with the red stripe yes. that mm-hmm. was whirl and whirl? Think of that as what some have called through through history the oscillating force, the life force, uh, the Alain Vital. There was a force through all human beings, through all life itself. What begins deep in us is the soul. Soul is always down. You don't t- take tell Ray Charles to get up. You tell Ray Charles, get down. You see what I did with my voice? You don't tell uh, Aretha, get down. You tell her to get up, because she was singing Baptist. And when Aretha stood up, the whole church stood up. Soul and spirit. 
soul is the force that is in the loins. It's the force that grounds us. Even my voice is doing that right now. Soul is deep. It's dark. It's of the earth. It's of hell in the underworld. It's the duende, the duende that the gypsies talk about. Spirit, if you follow that red stripe on the barber pole, is the urge for us to whirl, move, and now the soul force is moving up, up, up the spine, up the neck, into your head, and boom, right at the top of your head. Hmm. Which is why we even, when we're talking about lofty ideas, the voice rises a little bit. We get breathless when we talk about the moment when we saw our children born, when we have an epiphany in Shark Cathedral or at Yankee Stadium. When we feel the light moving in, we're moving into spirit. It's the same force, but in some moments, some hours, some days, the force is moving up, up, up. In other periods, when we're thinking about the economy, the, the hellish state of the world, someone dying in our life, the oscillating force moves down, down, down into soul. I'm embarrassed because I, I get caught listening to you and some of the things that you say to me are things that I know that you've discovered in your spiritual path and I'm about 30 years behind you on the spiritual path that you're on and the reason I'm not that's not an age thing what I'm saying is I got as far as I'm concerned stuck in the evangelical camp for too long uh, the evangelical Jesus camp and um, and I'm not. That's not a. Again, I'm not saying I'm completely bailing on on Jesus by any stretch of the imagination. But what I've what I've done, Phil, is I've I've been forced to leave a world of certainty, and have since discovered that doubt is more compatible with faith than certainty. Does that make sense? That's beautifully put and very humbly put. Thank you for saying that. So the other thing I, I, that I'm thinking about, I'm just looking at our time and realizing, wow, where did that go? I knew this was going to... We don't need notes. We don't need no stinking notes. Um, I'm thinking about what happened to me yesterday. I got called by a family. I'm a hospital chaplain, and a year and a half ago, this matriarch of a family passed away, and I did the funeral, and it was uh, it was quite nice to go from being a chaplain, visiting a family, as they say goodbye to their loved one, to being asked by that family to do the funeral. So a year and a half later, the patriarch of the family is now uh, ready to go, and and he asked me to come in and, and visit and and asked me to do his funeral. The family wants me to do the funeral, and, and um, who knows how long he'll be around. But I, I got into this discussion, as I've talked about many times here on the show, I said to this man, I think he's in his 90s, and he's got one leg amputated, and there's diabetes happening, and he just doesn't want dialysis anymore, and he wants to go be with his wife, but he's not sure if what's on the other side is really real, but he's yet, yet he's not scared. And I said, it is such an honor for me to talk with you at this point in your life, because this is a thin place. Now, immediately, Phil, you know what I'm talking about. But this, the Celts would talk about the gap between the creator and the created. C.S. Lewis talked a lot about this as well. And the gap became really thin between the other and the now, the creator and the created. In that moment, sitting in front of that man who's asking me to do his funeral, and it could be next week, wow, those are really thin places. For you, Phil Cousineau, tell me about maybe two of your most thin places that you've ever been in? There was a moment in 
Shark Cathedral years ago, where I went because my family is French Canadian. I was in, in, in a cathedral in the south where the family comes from, where the philosopher Michel de Montaigne came from. And I was walking in a labyrinth in this cathedral, <clears throat> and I happened to turn around and I saw a, a slumped over man with a black beret on who reminded me of my great grandfather, Charlemagne Cousineau. I kid you not. Wow. He had the same body language, a little tilt of the head, and I looked at him and I asked in very tortured French uh, a, a curious question. It just sliced in as if a blue light through the rose window. Uh, where is God? And he simply pointed with me into the heart of the labyrinth. And I thought that was one of the greatest spiritual lessons that I'd ever had. You have to walk a meandering 11-circuit path, meandering your way to God or the divine, the thin places, as the Irish would put it. That was a magical thing for me. Another, another moment for me was going out to one of the uh, old Celtic uh, grave sites in the Aran Islands, where I was working with a wonderful man named Dara Malloy, who's one, going to be one of my speakers on my upcoming tour to Ireland in September. And we were next to what's called a, um, um, a dolmen, which was a place that the ancient Irish used to bury their heroes and their chieftains in the belief that they would come again. They believed in reincarnation, or what they called metempsychosis. And if you buried someone in one of these mounds, it was as if you were burying them into Mother Earth itself. Yeah. And... Dara turned to me and he said, whenever we come into a spiritual crisis, we have no more surety, no more certainty. We have faith, but the faith is trembling a little bit. It's the fear and trembling of Kierkegaard, right? Mm -hmm. We need some kind of ritual or ceremony to bring us back, a kind of spiritual rebirth. And I remember walking into this ancient dolmen and reciting a few lines of Yeats and feeling some kind of tremendous energy coming up from the earth itself, hmm. knowing that it's my combination of travel, pilgrimage, uh, reading the great poets, going to museums, and something that we're doing right now, Drew, which is the long conversation. Yeah. For eight years, I used to meet with Joe Campbell in New York or San Francisco or out in, in uh, Hawaii when we were making the movie about him. And we came up with this playful notion that any time we sit down with somebody and we, we only have 20 minutes, we're, we're old friends, we have to get down to it. You say, how is your marriage going? Uh, how is your faith going? Uh, we are now dipping into what the ancients called the long conversation. Where is God? Where did love first pulse in the human heart? When did we first have the fear that there was evil in the world? And whenever we take a breath, we feel the hair standing up on our arm, and we ask another human being to talk from the heart and soul. We're in the long conversation. Wow. Not just any conversation, but the long one that actually matters Beautiful. and brings my quest together with your quest. Yeah, well done. Well done. Um, Phil, we need to cross paths again, and um, I will be creeping on you from a distance, and I, I will extend a, another invite to have you on the show because this conversation was not long enough. I appreciate it, Phil. 
many, many thanks, and I applaud what you're doing, bringing people together on the radio to have these long conversations. Beautiful. Phil Cousineau, writer, teacher, editor, independent scholar, documentary filmmaker, travel leader, storyteller. He is leading two upcoming travel programs, The Wild West of Ireland from September 18th to 28th, and the uh, Connemara Writers Retreat from October 1st to October 8th. PhilCousineau.net is the website. Phil, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you, sir. Carry on. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Phil Cousineau on the Drew Marshall Show.